This morning, uh, we are carrying on our series going through Mark's Gospel. And uh, essentially, this morning, what I have to say is, is incredibly simple, really. And I really am just bringing out, attempting to bring out what you will have read during the week if you did indeed read from Mark 11, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 12. Now, I got told off by somebody. Um, in fact, I think it's someone who might have just prayed for me. But anyway, the last time I spoke, um, because I asked who'd been watching the videos of The Chosen, but I neglected to ask um, who had actually been reading it. Was it you that said this to me? No, no, okay. Someone said to me... I, I, that they, they were a bit put out because I neglected to ask who'd actually been reading the readings. And they'd actually been reading the readings that week, and they were all ready to kind of go, yes, I have, and, and I didn't ask the question. So, who's been reading Mark's Gospel this week? Yes, thank you, all five of you. No, no, actually, let's look a bit more on that. So, if you have been reading that, or if indeed those, this passage is in any way familiar to you, what I'm doing this morning is really just kind of bringing stuff out from the text And you will be stunned how many points I've got this morning. It it is actually three, yes. Um, But going back to the videos from The Chosen, first of all, who watched the video from The Chosen this week? Ah, trick question. There wasn't one. And the reason for that is that uh, where we've now reached in the story of Jesus going through the gospel has now gone beyond where The Chosen has filmed (laughs) because they do it a season at a time as they get funding to do it. And so we will have to await uh, season four before we reach the events that we're going to describe this morning. If you have been watching the videos up to this point, I hope that you've enjoyed them. No, it's not absolutely every word as you read in the Gospels, although I would contend that there is nothing there which is inconsistent with what we read in the Gospels and indeed does, for me at least, help the whole stuff come alive. Um, And I hope maybe for some of you it's encouraged you to watch from season one and and go through all three seasons so far. I know at least um, a couple of people have said that to me. So because we haven't had the videos to to make it come alive, I want to encourage us this morning to kind of, even more than usual perhaps, put ourselves in the story this morning. Kind of play the video in your mind with you standing there. Maybe not one of the 12 disciples, but maybe one of the fringe of people that also we know we went around with him as well or joined in the journey at various times. I want us to actually really use the blessings of the gift of imagination to make the words come alive that we've read. Uh, As Nuala uh, prayed so eloquently in our prayer meeting before the the meeting this morning, so that we can almost smell the dust on the road. Because you see, we have been following Jesus and his band of followers on this road over the weeks. We've learned stuff about Jesus, I hope. I'm sure we have. And we've also, and I hope this is true because this was the intention of this series, we've learned a bit more from looking at these 12 followers what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And I don't know what lessons you've learned. And sometimes I know God speaks to us in ways beyond the words that are actually shared from the front. Uh, and that's fantastic that that happens. But I think probably maybe we've been reminded that you don't have to be perfect to be a follower of Jesus because they certainly weren't these 12. We've learned that followers of Jesus do make mistakes, sometimes have pretty questionable attitudes, even though those are a work in progress towards improving. And we've learned that despite all these failings, nevertheless, Jesus, this Jesus we've been watching interact with these 12 disciples, seems to continue to want to involve these followers in a very direct way, fully in what he's doing. For example, they've been um, blessed with being active participants in an amazing miracle, feeding well over 5,000 people. A few of them have been taken up a mountain and given the incredible privilege of witnessing Jesus, the word in the Bible is transfigured. They've had a revelation of the glory of who he really is. And after all of that, and after he's explained at the, somewhere in chapter 10 of this gospel, that this last journey to Jerusalem is going to result in his death and resurrection, stunningly, two of his inner circle, not two fringe people, two of his inner circle seem to have made a bid for seniority and honor in his coming kingdom. James and John have gone and said, can we have thrones next to you in your coming kingdom? Clearly, they've got lessons still to learn about the nature of this kingdom. So we reach Mark 11. And actually, there's quite a seriousness. I don't know if you pick that up. There's a, a real seriousness to Mark 11 and, and through in, in to chapter 12 that we read this week. The quite appropriate thing to say probably this morning, according to the weather forecast I read anyway, the storm clouds are gathering for Jesus and his followers. We are getting near the end of this part of the journey. So what lessons have they still got to learn? What lessons does Jesus want to teach them? And what lessons can we learn? And yes, we are going to look at just three words that I think sum up, at least some of what Jesus is wanting to get over. But the first word that we're going to look at, I want us to consider that I think the the disciples were challenged to consider was the word fame. Fame. Now, I could have used other words. I could have used success. I could have used acclaim. I could have used attainment. I didn't quite simply because the word fame begins with F and so do my other two points. So, fame. And, and we start beginning of chapter 11 with the, the whole instant of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And, and if you've ever read it before, just to remind you, basically at the beginning of this story, there's the whole incident with the colt and the, or donkey, depending on what version you're reading, where Jesus sends uh, his disciples off to appropriate this colt or donkey. He tells them where they're going to find it. Um, 
And clearly, when they first say that, there must be a look on their face to kind of go, what you mean? Because Jesus says, you know, and, and if someone challenges you, say that the master needs it. And lo and behold, they are challenged. So, yes, sure enough, when they do try and take this donkey cult, um, they are challenged and they say the master has need. And the people say, oh, OK, that's fine then. Now, I think this must have been quite encouraging for the disciples because... I'm sure in the backs of their minds or in the front of their mind, there was this sort of feeling that surely, surely now as we're reaching Jerusalem, you know, things are going to come right and Jesus is going to be recognized for who he is and he's going to get the acclaim and the success that he ought to have and the people of influence are going to listen to him because this is where the people, you know, kind of forgetting maybe what Jesus has said about what is going to happen in Jerusalem because we know that, you know, when he says things like that, at least one of them kind of goes, no, that's not going to happen, Lord, you know. And I think it sort of reminded me of, you know, a celebrity trying to get into a, a nightclub or a, or a restaurant, you know, and they sort of walk to the front of the queue and go, you know, look at the face. And they're allowed in. And, and it must have felt a bit like that for the disciples, I think. You know, okay, we're... It's not hijacking, is it, really? Or carjacking? Donkey jacking? I don't know. Anyway, they're allowed to take this, this thing. And Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. They were probably a bit puzzled that it's not some impressive stallion that they've been asked to get. But nevertheless, at least he's got something to ride in. And to their pleasure, I'm sure, there's the crowd. Now, clearly, people have been waiting for this. It talks about the fact they've got branches prepared. It says they've cut them down already. It's not like they weren't walking around with palm branches just sort of just in case something might happen that day you know they they're kind of aware jesus is going to do this and what do this crowd want because they've obviously been waiting for something and we get this chance as jesus rides in and yes they do talk about blessing him they say yeah bless you jesus bless you jesus They say, Hosanna, which kind of actually means God save us. And what do they think this salvation is going to look like? Do they say, yes, Jesus, you are coming into your kingdom? No, actually, they don't say that. They say, blessed is the kingdom of our father, David which I think gives us a clue of the sort of kingdom they were looking for. For them, they are still looking for a political answer to this. They are still looking to an answer to this kingdom, which comes from their experience of the world and the world's values. In essence, they're kind of saying, Jesus, come and make things like they were in the good old days. When we had power, when we had influence, when we didn't have these unclean Romans ruling over us. Come on, Jesus. And I was reminded of, uh, there's a, a, a few verses in John chapter 6. And in, in John's um, account of Jesus' life, that's where he puts the feeding of the 5,000. And after this amazing miracle, there's this key phrase. It says, the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. And Jesus 
was presented, I think, with a real temptation at that point. It's the same temptation he faced in the wilderness sometime before when Satan basically comes to him and says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. Just do things my way. The crowd tempt him to do the same thing in that passage in John 6. And the crowd here are tempting him to do the same thing. And on every occasion, Jesus rejects that sort of kingdom. He rejects a success that is using the world's values. Because he knows he is here for a bigger kingdom. So no, James and John. This is not a kingdom where you get to sit on thrones next to Jesus in this life in the way you have imagined. Actually, you will get to sit at the right hand of Jesus. But that was a revelation that came to Paul sometime later that we hear about in Ephesians. And that's still to come at some other time. Maybe. So fame... Jesus rejected fame in a sphere of influence that was completely rooted in the world. And he was challenging his followers that that isn't what they should be looking for primarily. Because, again, as Paul wrote sometime later, and as we looked at in some detail, A few months ago, actually quite a few months ago, in the book of Philippians, we are not citizens primarily of whatever country we're born into in this world. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of another kingdom. So what does success look like for us? And that's a challenge to us, isn't it? It's not that there's anything wrong necessarily in success in this life, not at all. But where are we looking to? What are we looking to primarily? Where are we looking to get our power from, our influence from? Is it from the structures of this world? Or is it that we are looking for influence rooted primarily in God's kingdom? That's a Selah moment to stop and think about that one. Second word. Fruitfulness. Now, actually, in, in Mark's gospel, the, the story of the fig tree is kind of the, the bread around the filling of another thing, another incident which we'll come to. But let's just look at the incident of the fig tree. And again, for those of you that might need reminding, basically the story goes like this. Jesus is walking on the road towards the middle of town. He sees a fig tree. He goes over to pick pick some figs. There are no figs. He curses the fig tree. And when he's on his way back at the end, uh, sorry, the next morning when he is going back into town, lo and behold, the fig tree has indeed withered. Now, it's a strange story, isn't it? It is a strange story because on the face of it, it's kind of Jesus acting a little bit petulantly, really. You know, I I wanted some figs. You can't give me any figs. Curse you, 
fig tree dies. Sounds like an abuse of power. I sort of dug around a little bit in terms of what, how people understand it, and here's the best I can offer. So basically, if you read the wording, it says that the fig tree was full of leaves. And apparently, and I've, not, I've never grown a fig tree, if we tried to grow a fig tree in our garden, even if it was something which was supposed to grow in this country, it would die. We're just not very good at that sort of thing. But I am told that if the fig tree looked like that, full of leaves in that way, you would expect that to be the promise of there being some fruit therein. It wasn't an unreasonable thing. Even though it says it wasn't yet the time for fruit, it, you know, it could have been early, not bloomer, but early producer, early crop. The leaves made it look as if there was fruitfulness. And Jesus observing that there is no fruitfulness, even though... it looks like there should be, curses the fig tree. Now, I think for Jesus to do this, I think we do need to put this in the consequence of the storm clouds gathering. Jesus knew his time was limited. And it's almost, for me at least, reading this, it's like I just want to use every way possible to get the message across in seriousness. And I make no apology for the fact there is a seriousness, I think, to the message this morning in, in all the points, really. It was a challenge. I felt challenged reading it anyway. Because there's a real weight to this, isn't it? You know, Jesus doesn't just kind of go, hey, guys, come and look at this. It looks like there should be figs and there isn't. He, he does something very active to really make it memorable. There is a serious point to be made. And, and when the next day they come and they notice the fig tree has, has indeed withered and died, Jesus' commentary on that is the verse, are the verses that, that Mark read at the beginning. He talks about the nature of true faith. Now, again, it's sort of easy to read that as kind of the disciples go, oh, wow, you cursed the fig tree and it died. And Jesus says, well, you think that's, you think that's impressive? Well, if you've got real faith, you could move a mountain. And, and it kind of sounds like Jesus is, is sort of giving, I don't know, advice about how you can perform even better tricks with nature than I've just done you. And it, it's not like that, <laughs> I don't think. I think it's basically Jesus wants to say, the lesson I'm wanting to teach you in this is what real faith looks like. It's not about something which looks fruitful but isn't. It's about something where if you've got faith, things can really happen and should really happen. Now, I find those verses as challenging as anyone. You know, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And I've got a list of things that I kind of want to say to God, well, come on then, if I'm really honest. But nevertheless, Jesus is making 
a point here about the nature of real faith. It isn't something which is all show and no substance. Real faith is something which is fruitful. Not just the leaves of promise, but the fruit of faith. Not just the leaves of promise, but the fruit of faith. And disciples following Jesus, looking at that, that's a challenge to them, isn't it? And disciples listening to that, that's a challenge to us, isn't it? What is the fruit of our faith? How much of what we do, all right, how much of what I do is to look or sound like a person of faith? Will people find fruit in me that they can feed from? kind of brings me on to my third and very much related point. Phil, your turn to smile now because this is the bit you prayed in the prayer meeting without knowing what I was going to talk about. In the middle of all the fig tree business, we have this instant in the temple. Again, quickly describe it. Jesus goes to the temple, finds lots of money changers, and, and actually, he had observed this the night before, by the way, at the end of his triumphant journey into Jerusalem, as it's called. It says he went to the temple, had a good look round. He knew exactly what was going on, decided to leave it until the next day to do something about it. So this isn't Jesus again behaving petulantly, you know, impulsively, going in, seeing some stuff going on in the temple he didn't like and... Blowing up. He knew what he was going to do when he went in there. And he went into the, the outer court, and there were money changers there because they wouldn't allow Roman coins. They were unclean. They couldn't be used in the temple offering. So you got your money changed to temple money. <laughs> and sacrifices were being sold, you know. Doves were being, pigeons were being sold so you could sacrifice them and all of that stuff going on. And, and Jesus overturns the tables and drives them out and won't let them do anything like that. Again, kind of strange incident in a way, because this isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Was this just Jesus having a bad day? Because this is all the same day as he curses the fig tree. So Jesus got out the wrong side of bed that morning. You know, he's just, uh, uh, bad fig tree, uh, horrible people. No. But what was Jesus' problem? Well, I think it's important to understand where it happened. It happened not in the court of priests. It happened not in the court of men. Not in the court of women. Those were three other areas of the temple. But it happened in the outer court, which was also called the court of, uh, anyone know? Gentiles. In other words, those outside of the kingdom of Israel, outside of this family of faith. Those who were outsiders, but they had put this area of the temple in so that even they could come to the temple. Even they could 
offer sacrifice, actually. The intention was for it to be an inclusive area, a house of prayer. Jesus says, it's written, my house should be a house of prayer. And he's quoting from Isaiah 56. And this is what Isaiah 56 says, this prophetic word. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That was the intention. That was supposed to be the fruit, but actually all they had was leaves. The place was there, but it was being misused. There was no opportunity for them to have a place there that they could find God. There was all this commerce going on. All this hustle and bustle, all this distraction from the main point. It was meant to be an opportunity for outsiders to be drawn to God. Instead, it's filled with the stuff of their religion. It looks busy and fruitful. Looks like there's a lot of religious activity going on, but it is all just leaves. They've lost their focus. They've turned inward. They've turned to the show. They've turned to the paraphernalia of religion. They've lost the focus. They're not keeping the main thing the main thing. They're keeping the show on the road, but they've lost sight of what the show was actually there for in the first place. And for followers of Jesus, how about us? How are we doing with focus? How am I doing with focus? A focus where primarily we are here to love and serve God and to show him to others in whatever way and draw them into the family of faith. And I'm not saying any of this that we do is wrong. Of course it isn't. But when this becomes the focus of our faith, I think we might have a problem. Selah. I'm going to close. I just want us to be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray this morning for me, Lord. I pray that you would go on speaking to me about what true success looks like in this life. What fruitfulness means in my faith. And about my focus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.